sneaky. He's very sneaky. For real, though. But are we ready? As the cameras are going and everything. You can Damn. save that for posterity. In sake. giving away the control, you got it. All right, cool. All right. Sorry. All right, well, welcome to episode six of Control Issues. Apparently, we've passed a milestone. Uh, I think Adam said that most podcasts, if they don't make it past episode six, um, no, you said episode five and you're on episode five. Six. Okay, yeah, you're right. Yes. So episode six. Here we are. Um, hopefully we get to episode seven. Um, we'll see. But um, I'm very grateful to be here. We're back in the Most High studio. Did a little hiatus last week and taped at my house, but it is cool. We have a new setup today. So yes, it's very professional. Oh, yeah. A new table. Impressed. I love it. Yes. So with me is Leslie. Hi. Um, I am very, very grateful that by, you know kismet we were able to get this together yeah, it's um, unusual that I was even able to do it so right excited. exactly yeah. so I'm very grateful um well I know you pretty well um but can you give us a little synopsis of who you are you know where you come from that kind of thing for the listeners okay so uh my name is Leslie I am born and raised in Atlanta um Northside Hospital which is pretty rare yeah mm-hmm. um you know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what you want to. Know. You want to know like my just who I am. Like yeah, like what? Okay, do you, what do I do? Sure. Like, okay, yeah, so, whatever you want to share. Okay, so born and raised here. Um, I have three kids, three boys, mm-hmm. 15, 13, and you're and eight. twenty nine years old, right? I God, I wish. Um, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Um, and um, for sixteen or seventeen years, I was a special education teacher. Okay. So I was really proud of that. Um, and then that's when my life sort of went a little bit sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm assuming we're going to get to that, but, yep. um, I am in recovery. I'm coming up on about two years, Ooh. almost two years. So, um, and I work now for a nonprofit social services agency mm-hmm. and it's, um, I run a program that addresses addiction in the Jewish community and beyond. And, um, I really do think it's my calling, yeah. which sounds very goofy. I thought special ed was my calling. I think, um, I just have to be doing something that's kind of helping other people. And I don't mean that to sound, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Arrogant. Like I help people, but, no. um, but I think I really have to, cause when I didn't do it for a couple years, that's when my life went in the toilet. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's what I do. I love my job. My kids are crazy. They are. My life is insane. They <laughs> Your really kids are, are the crazy. Most, though. They're, they blow me out of the water seeing stuff on Facebook. I'm, They're pretty awesome. You know, one of your sons is a phenomenal gymnast. He is. He actually quit. I know <gasps> everybody says that. I know everybody's like, what? I know he quit. Um, so my 15-year-old was a nationally ranked tumbler and trampolinist. Um, he has decided to quit doing that because he got like he was so good yeah. that he like couldn't train at the gym here anymore and he was going to have to move to another city. Oh, yeah. And no. he's this very uh, grounded, wise beyond his years kind of kid, mm-hmm. where, which I'm like, if I had this much peace and wisdom at 15 years old, what would my life have looked like? Right. I don't even know. It's crazy. Um, and so now he's diving okay. and pole vaulting and president of the Gay Straight Alliance at his school and all kinds of other things. My 13-year-old is a very talented hockey player. Which is very cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, my eight-year-old is nuts, but also plays hockey. So they're they're really cool. But, you know, Facebook is um, a snapshot yeah, of definitely. real life. We have lots of problems. Oh, no. And I, and, <laughs> but it is cool to see um, that experience that you have with them, right? Like you're very connected into their lives. And that kind of brings up a topic I want to talk about mm. is balance. So you're the go-to. Like mm. I know I have called you numerous times on a Saturday morning being like, I need to get this person into detox or how can this person go get tested for this or what have you. And without a beat, you always answer the phone or say, Hey, I'll call you right back. You know, we had a conversation. You're right. on the way to an out of city. Oh yeah. We were going town. to a hockey tournament. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you do a lot for other people and it's incredibly wonderful and you can see the impact it has on our community. Thank you. But how do you keep that balance of being like, well, I'm going to go to a hockey game with my family. How do you manage like I'm here with my family versus I want to help people and I'm connected? Well, and then there's also the managing my own recovery piece, right? Yes. And so I think there's a couple things to talk about here, right? Okay. So um, it's hard, mm-hmm. right? And I think... Oh God, there's so many things to say. So here's the thing. When I was in active addiction, I was a terrible mother, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and 
I'm grateful that things didn't get um, as bad as I guess they could have gotten, but um, I was not the mother that I wanted to be. And so when I got into recovery and kind of got my feet firmly planted in the ground after the first few months, I was like, my priority is to just make up for every mistake I ever made, which is impossible. Okay. Uh Um, And it took me some time to realize that like, I cannot fix what happened in the past all I can do is just be the best mother that I can possibly be mm-hmm. today and going forward. So that's really my focus is I really think about, you know, when I'm making decisions about where I need to be and what I need to do and, and am I making choices that are good for my kids and am I being less selfish and, and more selfless, right. um, I try to do that. So when I first took this job, so I didn't do a good job of explaining what I do. So I work for a nonprofit social services agency called Jewish Family and Career Services. We serve the entire community, not just the Jewish community. I always tell people that. <laughs> and um, the program that I run, part of it is an information and referral service where we basically kind of vet programs and try to find out what's mm-hmm. out there so that we can help connect people with resources. And it has been a phenomenal experience and I know a lot about what's available in the community now. Right. Um, and so when I first started the job, I felt like every call I had to answer, I handed out my cell phone to clients. I was checking email 24 mm-hmm. hours a day. I felt like I had to do this all the time. And one of my kids said to me one day, he was like, you're always on your phone. And I said, well, but I'm helping people. Right. So that makes it okay. And he goes, what about us? And I was like, shit, you know, (laughs) what about you? Right. And so it has been a learning curve Mm -hmm. of learning how to say no, of learning when not to, I mean, here's the thing, Zora, I'm always going to answer you when you call me. Like there are, there are people that I might be like, Hey, can I get back to you on Monday? Cause you know, I mean business. Well, I know you do. And I also, you know, you don't abuse me. There Mm -hmm. are people that abuse me. Yeah. There are, um, people in the industry um, who, when they don't have an answer, will give someone my name and number and be like, well, just call Ooh. Leslie. And I think they do that because it makes them feel better to have something to give someone. They don't yeah. want to say, I can't help you. Like, oh, but she can. Mm-hmm. And I finally had to say to them, like, st- st- I'm not your backup plan. Like, right. I can't, you know, do your so, job. Yeah, do your job. So if that guy calls me, <laughs> I'm probably not going to answer the phone on the weekend, right? Right. But, but, uh, but what I've figured out is, you know, we have to find this balance in the program mm-hmm. that we have. We're not a crisis center. We are open Monday through Friday from, you know, eight to five or whatever. Um, My voicemail says, if you're having a crisis, you need to call 911 or call the Georgia crisis and access line because we really can't help people that are in a crisis. The thing is people that are struggling with addiction. It's always a crisis. It's always a crisis, right? (laughs) I know. I've been there. I know. Right. And when people have that little window, when they finally say, okay, I'm ready. I don't want to lose that window. Because I'm like, oh, I can't deal with this right now. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I just, I don't know. And so I, I've tried to find some balance. What has been harder is finding the balance with my program. Right, I'm yeah. Not, I'm going to be accountable. Mm-hmm. I don't work the greatest program in the world. Wait, are you perfect? You're not perfect? I am not perfect. <laughs> I think there's this word in the big book that talks about progress rather than perfection. I know, in my terminal <laughs> uniqueness, I'm so special. Yeah. Um, but... It used to be easier, right? Right. It it used to be that recovery was such a priority for me Mm -hmm. that everything else got put on hold. To go to a meeting, to meet with my sponsor, Mm -hmm. I would kind of leave the kids at home or I would drag them with me to meetings. Um, And I've gotten to a place where I'm not doing that as much. Yeah. Um, But I'm also starting to feel the effect of that, right? Mm -hmm. And so in order for me to be able to do my job, that balance is imperative. Yeah. And the reason is because we see people who work in this field relapse all the time. Yeah. Okay. And the reason they relapse is because their job takes the place of their program and their personal because they think that's their recovery then, but really that's a second piece. Well, it it feels that way. Like it's not a conscious choice when you spend Mm -hmm. all day long talking about recovery constantly. Yeah. You feel like I've got enough recovery. Like I'm good. Well, and I think there's also this idea of I talk about this a lot. I know I've mentioned this before, like recovery in my mind, if we're using an, an illusion is like those crinkle shirts from the late nineties, early two thousands. They were it. one size fits all, right? <laughs> yeah. I had some of them, but they don't fit everyone the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. But we aspire to be this, like, this is how recovery is supposed to be. It's supposed to be seven meetings, a bunch of sponsors, um, a spon- you know, you have a sponsor, you're actively working steps. And I think that all is very important. 
But what I've learned from my experience, which is all I can speak on, is like the first year for me, yeah, I was at a meeting every day. And that's how I plugged in. And then in year two, that kind of changed, right? Because now I have areas where I didn't used to have areas. I have my family relationship. And, you know, I had a boyfriend. Things start popping up. And you have to realize that eh, maybe seven meetings is not manageable when you have this wonderful life that we've gotten from staying sober, connecting to God and working yeah. a program. And, you know, I go to three a week and that's what's working for me. Um, but I've witnessed some people kind of shame other people for the number of meetings there that they go to. There is so much shame in the recovery community. Yeah. There is so much shame. We have this hierarchy. Chunky pride. Junkie pride, yes. So like if I'm not like banging dope under a bridge somewhere, Mm -hmm. then I'm not a real addict. I don't really get it. I don't really understand. And, you know, I've had a lot of people give me shit because my drug of choice, my my favorite, favorite drug was marijuana. Yeah. And people are like, please. Oh, you can totally destroy your life with marijuana. Listen, and I did lots of other shit too, but that was the thing that I could never, ever, ever put down. And let Mm -hmm. me tell you something. I stole money on my kid's piggy bank to buy weed. Like I went to neighborhoods where I was definitely not safe. Mm -hmm. I I mean, not that you have to go to an unsafe neighborhood to buy weed, but you know, I I did all kinds of things. I made bad decisions. I left my kids alone at, you know, I was out with people and the babysitter would call and say, well, I've got to go. It's like midnight. And I'd be like, all right, well, the kids are asleep. It's fine. Yeah. My kids were like, thir- like 13, 11, and 5, right. you know? I mean, I made bad decisions. Mm-hmm. I lost my job. I destroyed my relationships. I, I mean, I did a lot of bad stuff. And so when I first got into recovery, I felt like I couldn't be honest about that. I almost felt yeah. like I had to lie, like I had to augment my story to make it better. But it's your story. But that's a hard thing to start to mm-hmm. own, right? Because... I already feel not good enough about everything yeah. in the whole entire world. And so now I don't feel good enough about my my addiction, right? And then that separates you, right? It becomes divisive, like, well, should I really be here? And then you could potentially yes. be one foot out the door. And I think that while that's not my experience, like, honestly, I didn't smoke much weed at all because I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. But you have an experience you can share with people who might say, oh, well, you know, weed is not something you can be addicted to right. when they could be completely powerless and their life is unmanageable to that substance. Um, And I like to say that, you know, everything that I have, while it might be grubby and gross and gory, that's an experience I have to share with someone else that no one else has. And someone else has different experiences than me. Um, And I think the minute that we start to put on this, like, you have to do X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. and have it look a certain way other than the clear cut directions in the first 164 pages of the big book. Yeah, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. But everything else is kind of at your own experience with good sponsorship and good connection with other people. And the minute you say like, oh, well, you didn't go to enough meetings Mm -hmm. is the minute that you're putting that triangle and making it lopsided. Because, oh, now the meetings are more important when you're like, but what else is important? Well, but I think that, but I think I I do have to, and I'll I'll kind of circle back to the kids with this, right? Is that I, you know, that, um, those little balancing boards that people Mm -hmm. use, right? So it's like you, I'm always kind of having to figure out where do I need to put my weight to keep things balanced, right? And so I was just thinking as you were talking about how when I first, um, got sober, I would think to myself, well, what would I have done to go drink or use or whatever, yeah. right? Um, okay, I need to do that to get to a meeting, right? Like right. I have to make it a priority. Like, And I think sometimes for me at least and what I see with other people is the farther I get into recovery, I start to get a little bit too much of a sense of, oh, I'm okay, I got this. Right. And I have to remind myself to go back to that beginning of what's the priority here? Because mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself, I have to go to these meetings because if I don't, I might use, I might drink, I might, I don't know, and then I'm going to lose everything. Right. And, and I think that's still true, right? That is still true. Um, And it's just a constant balancing act of trying to meet the needs of my kids and also take care of myself at the same time. And it's it's a hard thing to do. I've also chosen to be very open with my kids about Mm -hmm. what went on with me. Um, My eight-year-old actually for the longest time, and I know people will say like, you're not a real alcoholic. And I really don't think I'm a real alcoholic because alcohol wasn't like it for me until I stopped doing everything else. And then I drank alcoholically because I thought I'm not an alcoholic. So So I'm gonna do that, right? Um, But I had a bottle of Manischewitz, which is like (gasps) ceremonial wine, which is basically mad dog with Hebrew on the front. And so, (laughs) 
um, I had that in my refrigerator. Uh, oh, Manischewitz. I know. And I forgot about it because I just, I was like, I whatever. And my eight-year-old, he was seven at the time. He goes, mommy, there is alcohol in the refrigerator. Are you drinking? And I was like, okay, first of all, who put you in charge? Okay. <laughs> He's your accountability I know, buddy. Right? He's my accountability buddy. And I was like, no, but... I like that they understand what's going on. They've right. come with me to meetings. They've mm-hmm. um, they've met some people that have been through some really rough stuff, and I've had those people share that rough stuff because mm-hmm. I have teenage boys. Yes, and um, and I think it's been good for them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been good for them to understand like there's danger out there in the world, and, and we have to take care of ourselves. In dire situations, I know this firsthand. You can get pretty. Fucked up on Manischewitz because I've puked uh, yeah, Manischewitz all over my dorm room because <laughs> um, I'm like, don't know how I'm not Jewish, but um, yes, yeah, so you're honorary. <laughs> I'm honorary. You're honorary. Um, but that, like, if it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what it is. You could be drinking mouthwash, huffing paint, uh, yeah. whatever, air duster. My mm-hmm. boss likes to make jokes. That wasn't even my thing. And he's like, "Do you are you going to get high with this? Should we leave this at your desk? I just have to ask, does that bother you? No. Oh, no. okay. Um, my, I love where I work and my boss likes to poke fun because that's how he shows that he cares, right? Okay. Um, and he does know the boundaries. Like there was one time where he crossed the boundary. Um, but my dad will make jokes about silver and like, it's you know. It's so funny. My parents don't, like they are so like, they're still afraid to talk about it. Oh, yeah. And I did, um, I gave this speech at my synagogue, mm-hmm. um, which it's so funny because I'm not like a very religious person, but I'm like suddenly involved in my synagogue. And so um, for recovery month every year, we do like a thing with some of the synagogues where we go and we speak to, to the congregation. And mm-hmm. so I gave this um, this talk about connecting um you know, the, the kind of the act of making amends yeah. um, with Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, and and kind of drew all these parallels. And so I was giving this talk, and it was kind of emotional. My parents were sitting there, mm-hmm. and I got to this p- part where I sort of ad-libbed. And, I mean, I've made amends to my parents, but it was kind of half-assed. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, standing up there in front of, like, 100 people, and I just looked down at my parents, and I was like, I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you for continuing to be here for me. Like, I know I put you through some stuff. And... It was crazy because it was very real, right? Mm-hmm. It was a spiritual experience. Yeah. And I I don't know that I've ever really formally done that with my kids. I tell them mm-hmm. all the time. I'm like, you guys, I'm really, you know, I'm sorry that I wasn't the best mom I could have been, but I'm really trying now. And they're like, we're tired of talking about it. We know, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, it's kind of like my stepmother. I'm like, can I please make amends to you? Just keep doing what you're doing. I'm like, no, no, no. But I yeah. need to sit down and make amends with you. So you touched on a piece that kind of segues into something I want to talk about. And there's so much. Like, I'm so excited. I've been excited about this all day. I'm, I think um, that's so funny to me because I just don't think I'm that interested. Well, it's thank so you. many <laughs> things that, like, the other people have been on and yeah. a lot of the people that I'm very close with, we all have very similar experiences yeah. and takes on things. And you just bring something else to the table. Okay. And, um... So uh, religion, right? Mm -hmm. So you're Jewish. Mm -hmm. And um, we kind of connected over a friend that I lost last year. Mm -hmm. um, And through not only at his funeral, and then there was... um, what, what was a dedication, yeah. right, for mm-hmm. a space that was in the Chabad in town Mm -hmm. and uh, a place for people to be involved with recovery with a Jewish lens. So if we're being wholly honest, the Big Book and the AA program is founded on Christian principles. See, and I actually argue that point with people all the time, right? You say it's not? No, because the Oxford group was founded on Christian principles, and they left the Oxford group because it was founded on Christian principles. But but for for the layman, if they come in, Mm -hmm. we do this thing, and then we say the Lord's Prayer at the end, right? right? So it's it's heavily in there, and we're in the South, right? Yeah, yeah. but I, from the stuff that I know based on some of my experience with the Jewish community and recovery, right? Like there's, it's, there's stigma. It's a different experience, right? And so how do you navigate connecting with families? This is going to get really deep. Right. Um, where it's like, you know, oh, we're not going to talk about this. Same thing with like very religious families, right? My super Catholic family, they're all sober now, but a lot of other families like that are like, oh, we don't talk about addiction. Right. We don't talk about mental health. Um, and what's that like to be in a community where maybe it's not as outwardly talked about? Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is like literally my job. Yep. I, so, um, <laughs> it's what I do. So, um, 
you know, I think there are a lot of things that contribute to the stigma in the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. And I think in order to like, and I don't know if we have enough time to really unpack all of this, but I think in order to truly understand it, you do have to look a little bit at the concept of intergenerational trauma. Okay. okay? So, you know, and, and I just started exploring this with my own family. Mm -hmm. So my, and this is a great example. So my dad's parents are Holocaust survivors. We never talked about that. Wow. Never. Like I knew, but I didn't really know the whole story. Neither one of them went to camps. Okay. But okay. my grandmother's sister and her husband did. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there was no family. It was my grandmother and, uh, her husband. My grandfather died when my dad was very young and her sister and her sister's husband, everybody else was lost. Right. Mm -hmm. I grew up, my my dad's an only child. My mom's an only child. I grew up with no aunts or uncles, no cousins, no nothing. Like I have a nuclear family and that's it. Wow. Right. And you can have some mm, of mine. <laughs> That's why I had three kids. I thought I would just wanted this big family. And then I was like, three's enough. Anyway, so, um, but we never talked about it, like, at all. And the crazy thing is, I grew up in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we learned about the Holocaust incessantly at Hebrew school and Sunday school and all that stuff. It was just really important at the time, you know. Holocaust survivors still were not that old. They were speaking. They were, there, there was a lot happening, right? I read, right. you know, the Diary of Anne Frank and I saw the movie and I, just all of it. It was pounded in my head. But my family never talked about our own history. And I think that is very indicative of the way that the Jewish community copes with a lot of things. Mm. I think it's this idea of, you know what, it was really terrible, we survived it, and let's just put it behind us and not talk about it anymore. And and I think, it, you know, as a, as a culture, we're a very resilient people. I think if you look at our history of being, you know, persecuted and, you know, enslaved and whatever, and we always come back, right? So we're very resilient. But there's a lot we don't talk about. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at any studies about and, and information about intergenerational trauma, it talks about how it's passed down in the DNA, right? Mm -hmm. And so it becomes ingrained in the way that we function and the yeah. way we behave, right? And and it's internalized. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. I really do. Just this idea of we're better than this. We can right. beat this. We can rise above it. And I think how that translates in real life is, you know, I always felt very shameful Mm. Um, even though, so if you are in the program and you read the big book, there's a story in the back called it, it could have been worse. And yeah. that's always the story I relate to because the guy didn't start drinking until he was like 35. Right. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get into drugs and alcohol until later in life, but I do have an eating disorder that I was in and out of treatment for in my twenties and continue to, to deal with today. Um, I just never measured up to what was expected, I think, of our, yeah. by our community. Everybody around me was, you know, doing really well in their careers and they were making a lot of, you know, they making good money and they were growing their families and they were really smart. And I just, I never felt like I did the thing I was supposed to do. Right. I just, I was so filled with shame. And I think that's kind of what perpetuated a lot of my bad behaviors for mm -hmm. a long time. Um, my parents never said they weren't proud of me. It wasn't like that. But I have, you know, a sibling who is very successful. She's an attorney. She lives in another city. She's just, I don't know. I just always felt like not, not enough. Not enough. Yeah. And I think that is something else that tends to happen is that there are a lot of expectations. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't think it's doesn't come from a bad place. No, I think it's the best of intentions, right? And I, yeah. that really resonates with me. My family, well, we grew up in the Episcopal Church, but the Catholic Church is where my mom came from. And, and my that Catholic guilt is a real thing. And like you were talking about... The Jewish about, that's, guilt is a very real right. thing. <laughs> I think that's why I love Judaism so much is because I'm like, They're I very get alike. it. They're Just very take out alike. Jesus and yes. we got similar yes. things. Um, but your food is probably better. <laughs> Shout out bagels. Um, <laughs> I had the best bagel ever yesterday. Okay, I'll get you some um, kugel. You need a little kugel in your life. Yes, okay. please. <laughs> if you might find me some rugula, I'll be very happy. Okay. But, um, so I really relate to that, right? Like yeah. I never felt like I was good enough. All the expectations, right? And it's a lot to carry around with you. And what do you do? I'm like, well, I know what's going to make me feel better. So with all the, the stigma and everything that's in the in the Jewish community and in other communities right. as well, um, how do you pass through past that, that to do your job? So I am so lucky that I have a job where I get to talk about this stuff, where I can be completely open about myself and my problems, where I can say on a podcast that I have an eating disorder, that mm -hmm. I'm an addict, that I suffer from major depression because 
in doing that, it opens up the conversation for other people. And I think, you know, there's other organizations kind of doing, there's an organization called the Blue Dove Foundation that's also doing similar work, trying to kind of open up the conversation around mental health, mental illness and addiction in the Jewish community specifically. And I think we're making progress. I think the culture at large is making progress and, and we're making progress. It's just a constant conversation. And I think the thing that I have found that has been the most powerful is finding relatable stories. Okay. Um, you know, people who, especially if they grew up like in the Orthodox world, yeah. um, or if they grew up and like went to good schools and had a, you know, really successful family and you, you have these people that come from those situations and then fast forward 10 or 15 years and, you know, they are at the bottom of the well with their addiction. Mm-hmm. Right. And then they come back. Right. And then they recover and you see, okay, so let's look at this story arc here. Started out just like everybody else ended up here, which is kind of scary, right? but then was able to recover, right? Because there's stigma around all of it. Mm-hmm. Once an addict, always an addict, worthless, useless, whatever, right? We have right. to show people what's possible. Sorry, what's possible in recovery. <laughs> Breaking the rules with sorry, the table. Sorry, sorry. We have to show people what that looks like, right. right? And remind them, like, people can get better, right? The other thing that I've had to talk about and really tried to open up the conversation about is this idea of... Um, kind of functional addiction, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, you can be an addict and still have a job, still have a relationship, still have friends, right? Right. Your life might be sort of together on the outside, but you could be falling apart on the inside, right? And I think for me, you know, one of the reasons that I feel so compelled to give back is because I have a lot of support in my life and I was right. really never allowed to fall too far because I have a family that's able to help me, right? So yeah. I always had a safety net. If I couldn't pay my rent, I always had someone to call to help me. Like, I've, it's, I'm very lucky, okay? Right. And I think that happens with a lot of people in our community is that things don't get too bad mm. because there's somebody to swoop in and help. And I do think that I've had to really talk with people about why do you have this idea in your head of, you know, it's like a stereotype of like a guy on a park bench with like a bottle and a paper bag, that that's what an alcoholic looks like. And I'm like, no, an alcoholic can just look like somebody who is drinking to the point of blackout, who can't make it to work, who is saying and doing things that they don't remember that impact Mm -hmm. people negatively. That's not available to their children. That's not available in their relationships. Like that's an alcoholic too. And that kept me out of the rooms for a long time or bouncing in and out really because I was like, well, this is, I had this sliding scale, right? Until I do, I'm not an addict until I've stolen from someone. Mm-hmm. Well, then that would move. Like I'm not an addict until oh, I've stolen from a moves. business, right? Mm-hmm. But that kept me out because I'm like, well, until I get to that point where I'm, like you were talking about, the person under the bridge, well, that did become my life. And then I was like, well, shit. And then <laughs> I didn't make any changes, you know? And I, I eventually did because yeah. I'm here. But right. um that stigma is there and you it's unless we break down that wall of saying like this is not and i think that in this day and age they're doing a lot more to show about heroin addiction and opioid the opioid crisis because you can be a heroin addict and have grown up in a country club lifestyle mm-hmm. and it it's not just the people who live in the inner city and all these things that are stories that have been told our whole lives mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it's to this is just my perception, like maybe protective, right? Like, well, if you just do the right things, good things happen to good people. My mom would always say that. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I think I'm a pretty decent person. My car got broken into on Saturday, right? Like sometimes things happen Mm because that's life and God isn't everything, you know? So um, with that being said, something else that I have a lot of respect for you for is your support of your son, Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, shout out to Kim because she wanted to talk about oh, this. Okay. This is um, a Kim request. It's a awesome. Kim request. All right. um, but so I'm part of the LGBTQ community myself. Um, and like, I'm going to get emotional, like watching mm. you support your son. And, you know, I only see the stuff on Facebook, but I think that a lot of what you do is very vulnerable on social media. Right. Mm. And as I always say, vulnerability is a true measurement of courage. Shout out Brene Brown. Um, but what's that? experience for you to, you know, your son is gay mm-hmm. and he is out with it. And I oh, totally. love that. Yeah, it's amazing. And to be supportive and experience life, you know, that part, cause it's, there's a lot of stigma there too. So I, I don't know. So I knew this child was gay when he was two years old. Okay. 
And uh, he would walk around in my grandmother's jewelry, like her clip-on earrings, and he would put on my clothes and wear my... I have a picture of him when he's like 18 months old, fresh out of the tub in a pair of like stripper heels. (laughs) 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 Um, And listen, that is not to say that that makes you gay or that that's... Right. I don't want to ascribe to any of those stereotypes. Lots of little boys who end up being, you know, cisgendered, heterosexual men... Mm -hmm put on their mother's jewelry, put on their mother's clothes, right? Right. But I just knew, and I think I was attuned to it because I kind of feel like a member of the queer community as well because right. I would say that I fall somewhere on a spectrum of sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't know. I just was always fine with it. I was just waiting for him to come out with it already, right? Right. The funny thing about him is is that he's into monster trucks, like obsessed with monster trucks, okay. has been to every monster jam that's been to Atlanta since he was five years old, has met the drivers, started a fan page, And he's also a drag queen. I mean, it's like this bizarre balance, right? And so when he came out, it was, Mm -hmm. I was, it was a bad time. He picked a really bad time to come out, but you know, and uh, it was, we were just separated and things were really crazy. But I think maybe he felt like he just couldn't keep that in anymore, that his life was sort of imploding. His parents were getting divorced and they were fighting and it was ugly. And he was One of those like like necessary word vomits. Yes, it totally was like 1130 at night. He just came into my ex-husband's room and he was like, dad, I'm I'm gay. And he was like, okay. We both were, right? And so I watched him really, really struggle and suffer in middle school. Mm -hmm. It was, the, the bullying in middle school was excruciating and he handled it. He just handled it, right? And I guess I just, I don't know. I was excited when he finally came out. I was excited for him to finally be who he really is and not have to hide it anymore and to experience his true self. And he's just an incredibly grounded, mature kid, right? And so um, thank God I've had some really cool friends who have offered some amazing opportunities to him. You know, we had a drag show at Kim's Kim's salon and he got to to do that. And, you know, I don't know. It's just been really cool to watch him grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he's president of the Gay Straight Alliance. He's been, um, there's this amazing organization called Sojourn. You should go check it out. Um, which is the Southern Jewish Resource Network for Gender and Sexual Diversity. That's so cool. It's amazing. And they have these um, retreats a couple times a year for LGBTQ teens. And he went and did that and sort of explored spirituality. And that way, Mm -hmm. like, he has friends that are trans. He has friends that are non-binary. He has friends that are lesbian. He has friends that are gay. Like, he has managed to surround himself with this incredible tribe. And I've been kind of like a surrogate mom to a lot of them because their parents just don't get it. And, you know, there's, he has one friend who identifies as trans and the family still has all the pictures of him up on the walls, you know, as, as a girl and that took a long time to even call him by the name he chose. And Mm -hmm. I just, it, it just killed me. Right. And so I just tried as much as I could be to be a safe space, um, because I, I, I don't know. It's like this part of my brain that like doesn't get that whole concept. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So in, I think it was seventh grade. Um, he just was so sad. He had gotten Snapchat and like everybody was mm-hmm. right. And he's like, mom, just nobody invites me to like do anything. And I just feel so left out of everything. And we would talk about it and talk about it, talk about it. And I was like, I don't get it. He's good looking. He's athletic. He's smart. He's funny. Like, he's hilarious. He's fun. Right. All it takes for people to not hang out with you is just that you're gay. Like it's 20, you know, 17. This mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. Right. And so I said to him one day, I was like, I mean, maybe the problem is just you. I mean, maybe people just don't <laughs> like you. It can't just be because you're gay, right? Like I was, I thought yeah. maybe you're annoying. I think you're annoying sometimes. Maybe that's yeah. it. He came back and said to me later, he said about a year later, he said, that hurt me so much. He mm-hmm. said, because what you were saying was you were not honoring the experience that I was telling you I was having. Yeah. You were telling me that it was in my head and that I was imagining it. He said, but I wasn't mad because I know that you are so accepting and open-minded. It's impossible for you to understand yeah. how other people think, that you mm-hmm. just couldn't get that people would be mean to me just because I'm gay. He's like, but guess what, mom? They, they do. Yeah. yeah. And so I just, I feel like it's such a gift. It really has been a gift. Now, with that being said, there's a flip side to that. I have another child who um, has a really hard time with the amount of attention that Eli gets. Oh, yeah. Um, he's very out there on, on Instagram. He does makeup. He does all this stuff. A lot of the girls follow him. And my other son has kind of some resentment. He's like, right. I don't want to go to Pride. He's like, it's weird. Like, I would drag him every year. I'm like, we're going to do this as a family. Mm-hmm. And I finally had to stop and say, his needs are important too. Yeah, what is his experience going to yeah. be with What is it? his experience? And he said to me finally, he goes, Mom, 
I don't like it when that float comes by with those guys that have those puppy masks on. <laughs> he's like, that's just, it's just weird. He's not the I know, only he's one not wrong. I'm like, something. it is totally weird. And like a couple years ago, the um, Swinging Richards float, yeah. they were throwing little vials of like lube and condoms. And, yeah. you know, the kids have bags and they're like catching all the candy and the beads and stuff. And he just kind of picks up and looks at <laughs> Like, he's like, mom, I just, I don't like it. And I've realized that um, being an advocate for one kid doesn't mean that I have to forget about the other one. Yeah. And I have to make sure that he's comfortable too. It's not fair to make him uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't like going to pride. So we're not going to make him go anymore. And so it's, again, about that balance of yes, meeting everybody's, everybody's needs. Like letting them all be there. They're three very individual personalities, right? Yes. Yes. And we kind of touched on this before we really got started because, I, I mean, we can chat for hours, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so at some Between point... the two of us. Right, exactly. We could talk, paint off a wall. Um, I think we're both very passionate about things, but, um, you know, my brain also doesn't get not accepting things mm -hmm. other than like if you're a Jets fan I'm not going to accept you just get I over that is that a is that a football team yeah, it's I don't football even team. know okay. it's a big rivalry right. with Patriot but like I'm sports. essentially making a joke but I'm I I'm, know you are. I'm dead serious <laughs> if you're a Jets fan go talk to someone about it um but um for the most part I'm like very very accepting of everything because I feel like this is just my personal opinion is that if you don't allow someone else to educate you on their side of things, you become divisive for no reason. And the minute that you put ignorance up as blinders, you're also probably going to miss out on something awesome, you know, and not to say that just because someone's different than the rest of the world means they're more awesome. But honestly, I've found those people are more awesome because yeah. they tend to have more love and compassion because it was not afforded to them in the same way mm -hmm. that this picket fence lifestyle was to some others. Mm -hmm. And I personally don't like that lifestyle. That's just not my thing. Um, I mean, I still like to think I can dress pretty as a girl. I enjoyed putting on a dress and, you know, looking beautiful for my best friend's wedding. Um, but the minute that we choose to put things into a box and stop seeking is the minute that all hell goes, or it goes, all goes to hell, right. you know? Um, so I don't know if you're going to be willing to go this deep with me. We're going to talk about more crazy things. Okay. Um, but you got divorced in recovery, right? Or no, was, was it before? An addiction, yeah. An addiction, okay. Yeah. But I know you had some stuff that happened yeah, yeah. after the fact. Yeah. Um, so what's that experience like? Because I've never been married. I don't even have a date or a boyfriend, right? So me neither. But I know that. This <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're the single ladies. Um, but I know that that's something that some listeners have had some feedback, like they want to talk about experiences they're having, right? Okay. So with divorce, divorce, right? So okay. you've gone, you're you're separate. You were separated, then you were divorced. Now you have these kids. You're a single parent in recovery. What's that like? And navigating that. It's a lot. Co-parenting <laughs> shit. <laughs> so I, the co-parent, okay, so I think that's what I'm going to focus on because okay. there's a lot there's in there. There's too much right? more, it's yeah. It's a lot, okay, because our divorce was really ugly, mm -hmm. um, and it's because I was an active addiction, and it was because I couldn't deal with anything, and everything I did came from a place of fear and insecurity. It was I was just a ball of fear, dysregulated emotions, unmedicated <laughs> mental illness. Like, right. I was a train wreck, okay, and... I was constantly engaging with my ex-husband. The right. fights were huge. They were, sorry, they were explosive. They were, they were out of control, right? And I think I thrived on it a little bit. I think I liked the fight. You know, we would get into it on text and we'd get it on the phone and it was, it was insanity, right? And, but I kind of liked being a victim. I liked being able to blame everything on him. I liked being able to say, look at what an asshole he is, even though that wasn't really the case. Like I, I was, I had part in that too, right? Yeah. And I remember one time I went over, um, and we live about a mile away from each other, not even like a half a mile, maybe less, um, by design so that our kids, we have equal custody, one okay. week on, one week off, so that um, we're both very disorganized people, and so stuff gets left at houses and whatever, and being same close Same school means, district. Yes, they're in the same school district. They can always go to the other house to get what they need. We can help with carpools, whatever, right? And so we're in and out of each other's houses a little bit. And mm -hmm. so I was over there one day, and I think I took a, a bubbly water that we've both shared a love of right out of his refrigerator and Shout he came in and he um I don't know we got into a fight about something and he said who told you you could take that out of my refrigerator and I was like you want it back here you go and I threw the open LaCroix across the room at him and of course it went everywhere and right. then he just yelled at me and it was this whole thing 
And I realized when I left, I don't know why something clicked for me. I realized I had given him exactly what he wanted. Mm. I acted like a crazy bitch because who throws open cans of beverages across the room at people when they're pissed at them? Yeah. Right? Me, 2012. Right? Exactly. And I had given him exactly what he wanted. Right. And he could then tell people, you won't believe this woman walks into my house, takes something out of my refrigerator, and then has the balls to throw it at me. Like, I, I, I putty in his hands, right? Yeah. And once I got into recovery, that was when things really started to get better. Um, it is a very hard thing to co-parent. It is, it is, I think it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. One of the hardest things I've ever done because we do have so much fear and insecurity yeah. in that space, right? And finding a way to truly put our children first and to not have revenge and to mm. not get the last word and to not be right. Yeah, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Shout out to my dad. That's, right? Yeah, is he that said that his... to me all the time okay. growing up, right? It took a long time to get there, and I'm really, really lucky. I have a therapist that I've been seeing for um, – well, she was my case manager when I was on the women's program at Ridgeview in okay. 2002. Wow. And now it's 2019. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see her for four or five years and then I got back with her. And we kind of have parallel lives. We come from similar backgrounds. Our kids are around the same age. And she got divorced a year or two before I did. And um, I think it made her be better able to guide me through that whole process, which yeah. was amazing. And she said to me at one point, I said, I just want them to know what a dick he is. Like, why don't they get it? The kids, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm like, he doesn't do anything and all this stuff, right? Which isn't true. He does plenty. But um, that's your feel that's but at the time, feeling. In the that's moment, how I was right? feeling, right? I wanted the kids to know. I wanted the satisfaction of the kids saying, yeah, dad's a dick, mom. You're mm -hmm. the best, right? And she said to me, the worst thing you could do is badmouth their father. She yeah. said, here's the thing. If that's an issue for them, they'll figure it out on their own. Either he's going to change and evolve as a person and they won't feel that way because he is a good dad, right? Yeah. Or if there's a problem there, they'll figure it out on their own. And it's better for them to figure it out on their own than for you to put those words in their head and in their minds because they will resent you for it for the yeah. rest of your life. They'll say, you turned us against dad. You told us to hate dad. And I was like, oh my God, like that was such an aha moment for me. And mm -hmm. I think, I also think the process of, of recovery this this idea of understanding we don't control everything. Yeah. Certainly not other people. Um, that we have to find our part in things and own it. That we have to uh, constantly be evaluating our behavior and figuring it out how to be better the next day. And all of those things kind of came together to make co-parenting a whole lot easier. I bet. Because I was able to let go of a lot. And I even remember I was at Candlelight one night and mm -hmm. I was, I was, I don't remember what had happened, but it was really bad. And I was really upset. And I remembered that somebody had said to me, um, when you're really resentful towards someone, you should pray for them to have all the things you want for yourself or yeah. whatever. And I don't pray a ton. I'm not like a big prayer. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did. I sat in the back of that room. I was in tears. And I just, I remember saying this very earnest prayer and something just lifted off of me and I felt better. Oh yeah. You're talking to prayer queen over here. Uh, yeah. I love it. it that crazy. warms my heart. Yeah. It was crazy. And I think, again, it's all been a, a kind of a learning process. And listen, last week we, I went to dinner mm -hmm. with my son and his father and his girlfriend. His your ex's girlfriend? Yes. Okay. We went to dinner together. We spent the Jewish holidays together. We went to synagogue together. And that's a lot of time to spend with someone. <laughs> Listen, I mean, it was just services, but like still. But services are like, long. I never thought that I would be at a point where I could even be in the same room with him, let alone hang out with him and his girlfriend. And mm -hmm. the crazy thing is that the kids are so happy about it. They, you know, they can accept, I think, the fact that our family is not going to be the unit that it once was. But I think seeing us be together and all of us being able to spend time together is is so valuable for them. And when I see that, all of that ego yeah. and that pride simmers down. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I think that, like, I'm not the perfect co-parenter, but I've gotten a whole lot better. And the kids are better. Like, yeah. everything's better and I just don't care about being right anymore. Every now and then I'll get caught up in it. Yeah. But it's hard. And I do think that's where we come back to that balance, right, of 
going to meetings, having a network, you know, having a good sponsor, you know, doing the things you need to do to keep yourself okay yeah so that you can handle that kind of stuff so that when that experience because no one promised that life gets better just because you get sober right it's still life life is going to happen and you know in the book and this is what I firmly believe that God is everything or God is nothing and so God is in the divorce God is in the fights God is in the cancer God is in all of that we just have new sets of tools to handle those situations and to connect with others and walk through them and just because you get sober doesn't mean it's all unicorns and puppy dogs and orgasms, right? It's going to be, <laughs> that was just for you. I usually, I say um, puppy dogs and like rainbows, but orgasms work. They're okay. better than rainbows. Yeah. Let's be real. But, yeah. um, but so, you know, life doesn't, isn't perfect. Um, and it's so cool to see your experience and be like, okay, I went through divorce. I'm, you know, I'm co-parenting and all that is because of the program. Listen, those literally are the promises coming true. Yeah. Being able to coexist with my ex-husband to the benefit of my children yeah. is the promises. I get really irritated and I have to like deal with it when people mm-hmm. will be like, you know, they'll show like on Facebook, like a picture of an engagement ring. They'll be like, promises. And no. I'm like. Okay. The promises is me not wanting to kill myself every day. Right. right? Like, like that might be part of the promises for you. But, you know, one of the promises says um, we will not fear fear economic insecurity. What is it? Uh, yeah. F- fear, fear, of of e- fear of economic insecurity will leave us. Yes. I have to remind myself every day. It doesn't say that economic insecurity is going to leave Just me. fear of it. It says the fear of it's going to leave mm-hmm. me. And, and it has. I am not as financially secure as I would like to be. Right. But I'm also not, like, racked with fear and anxiety about it. I'm yeah. just like, okay, what do I need to do? Every now and then it does get overwhelming and it is kind of scary at times, um, but mostly right. not. Well, you know? those are the moments where you have people that turn to prayer. I'm a big prayer. I love to talk to God, you know, and I just Does he talk back? To or me, she? no. Um, my my godfather can hear God, and I'm just so jealous about that because I'm like, just do, just shoot me a text, right? <laughs> like that's all I need. Yes, to keep doing this. No, run for the hills. Um, and like Chancy talks about how he usually his gut instinct isn't is something intuitive from right. God, and I try and lean into that. Um, but I had this beautiful experience this weekend. My best friend got married. I was with her. I took pretty much four days off of work to be part of this. Um, And I have never felt that much joy and love in my heart. Mm. Um, But we had this moment where we all sat down and we prayed before she got married. And I am a pretty strong prayer. I pray in public often. I don't mind. But I mean, I couldn't get through the first couple words. I just start bawling. Then this other girl's bawling. And Drew's got like Dorito dust on her fingers. (laughs) And she's crying because Doritos in a white dress was a good idea. it's an but interesting choice. that's another promise, right? Is right. that that connection to have, like, to show up for my best friend, to be there and to be present and to feel those feelings because I didn't feel any feelings before, good or bad. Well, not only that, but, like, I used to feel um, such intense, raging jealousy. Mm. I could not be happy for another person yeah. if they had something that I wanted. And this idea of that you you go and, you know, we're making jokes about being single, right? Right. You go, you've been to how many weddings in the a last lot. couple of months, right? I Yeah. And and all you feel is joy yeah. for the other person's happiness. Like, I just, I, there's something so freeing about that. I, I, I That, to me, I think has been one of the most important mm-hmm. things that's happened to me is that I stopped wanting what other people have all the time. Yeah. Like, I'm really okay with what I've, with what I've got, you know, and, and. And like I said, I'm pretty lucky. There are a lot of people that have it a lot harder than I do. Yeah. And I and like I said, that's why I try to give back as much as I can. I really feel an obligation to do for others because I have so much that like, I mean, mm-hmm. not that I'm like independently wealthy, but just, you know, I, I but have, you have the I'm means. house living, I have a car, I have a job, I have health insurance. Like, so it's my job. Like, it's my duty to do for other people. I just, I don't know. I just feel, it's a very... Um, well, most spiritual teachings tell us, whether it's coming from the, the Talmud, a Mishnah, or, or a sermon, right? right? There's a lot of stuff in religious texts that talks about how if you give to others, you will receive in dividends. Well, I think that's oftentimes misunderstood. Like, oh, well, if I give 10 bucks, I'm getting 10,000 back. Mm-hmm. No, you're receiving dividends of something else, right? right. And 
I would rather skip that Starbucks latte so that I can help someone else getting, I don't know, shoes, whatever, because that joy, I mean, it's kind of selfish joy, right? Yeah. Like uh, the feeling that you can receive from helping someone else lights you on fire. Well, and I don't I, get high anymore, I so know, I need but, something. But you know, I think the other part of that too is that helping others is about doing it with um, with integrity mm-hmm. and dignity for the other person, right? So the other day I was walking into the Target by Perimeter Mall and there was a guy, um, he, you know, clearly homeless, had a backpack and a whole bunch of stuff, hadn't showered in a while. Um, and he was just sitting on the ground with a cardboard sign that said, um, good, ne- good deed needed today. Right. right. And so my first instinct, even though I usually don't do this, was to keep walking. Yeah. And then I stopped myself and I was like, no, do I have any money on me? And then I was like, no, not that either. It took me a minute to figure out the right thing to do. And I just walked over to him and I just kind of got down on his level. And I was like, hey, um, do you need any food? Yeah. Because I'd be happy to get you some food. And the crazy thing was the guy was so humble. He said, I'd really like some beef jerky and a couple cans of soup. And I said, that's it? It was cold at the time. I said, yeah. do you want me to get you like some long underwear? Do you want a hat? Like, do you need anything else? And he was like, no, that's it. And I was like, okay, it's my pleasure to do this yeah. for you, right? And so I did, and I came back out, and when I came back out, there was this guy with a baseball hat on that mm-hmm. had Jesus in letters this big, yeah, talking to this guy um, and telling him that if he just found Jesus, everything would be oh, okay. Oh, God bless America. Right, and so, and, and I got upset because mm-hmm. I know some people do really believe that, and they really yeah. believe in their heart of hearts that that's what's going to help this person. Mm-hmm. But what he needed was food. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And that's not treating a person with dignity. That's patronizing. And it's it's it's, not the Jesus message either. It's not. And that's, what's crazy. And, and so, you know, I gave him some food. I knew, I knew he was at it. I said, Hey, Mm -hmm. you know, are you using right now? Are you clean? Like what's going on? And we talked about it. I said, do you need Narcan? I have some in my car. He's like, no, I have tons of Narcan. I was like, (laughs) okay. I know. right? Right. And, um, and that was it. But I think there are little ways, like it, some, it used to seem so overwhelming to me to, to get involved and to give back, mm-hmm. but there are tiny little things that we can do that nobody needs to know about, that we don't have to tell anybody about, um, that just stay between us and our higher power. Um, right. That, I, that is kind of what keeps my tank Well, full. what's that? Uh, there's a Coca-Cola commercial and, it, you know, they, they give a can of Coke to someone else and it starts this domino effect. Right. And I, I truly believe that that's how it works, right? Like, yeah. and even if it's not, maybe you can't afford to give someone food or or maybe you don't want to give them cash because you think they might go buy dope, right? right. But, but if you walk past that person and say, hey, how you doing today? And give them a smile, that could light up it's, their day. You know, you it's know? so true. I think it's treating people with dignity and respect. And I think the other thing too is, I think, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day that I was working with a client who... Um, had a very kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of executive high-level job and career and, like, lost all of it, mm-hmm. um, but has the means to kind of chill while he figures out what to do next. And he was just telling me, he's like, I just I just feel stagnant. I'm, I'm bored. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with myself. I was like, go volunteer. Yeah. And he's like, like, recovery stuff? I'm like, I don't care. Just something. Do something. And I think it gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It gives, I mean, I used to do all my stuff used to be recovery related and sometimes it still is, but like, I don't have my kids this year for Thanksgiving. So I am going to go with friends later in the day, but I'm going to volunteer during the day. Like I have the time, like I want to do it. I enjoy it. I love it. It doesn't feel like a chore. And I think if everybody has a thing, right? Mm -hmm. When you find the thing that you're passionate about, whether it's politics, animals, the environment, your church, I don't care. Just do something. And I, I, for me, I think that's a huge part of keeping me centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think being in, in the rooms of 12-step recovery, I really, it's taught me more than anything else I've ever mm-hmm. done in my whole entire life. And, you know, there's that line about we are a group of people who normally would not mix, right? Amen to that. So you're 27, I'm 45. Yeah. Like, I don't, this would normally not happen, right? Not only you're that. You're a pothead and I'm a junkie. I know, right? Right. Like, right? Um, you know, being in a room where in one space at one time you can have, you know, a housewife, an executive, um, a, a homeless person. Yeah. Um, 
people that are in sober living, people that just such an incredible range of people and meeting those people and hearing their experiences and hearing them open their mouth and share thoughts and feelings that I have too, even though if I saw them outside of those rooms, I would think we have nothing in common. Right. What that's made it possible for me to do is just to connect with people in general Mm -hmm. on a completely different level. And my favorite example is, you know, when I'm walking through little five points now and I see some dude that's got like everything pierced and like everything's black and he's like this big scary looking dude. And I'm like, Hey, what's up? And usually they'll be like, Hey, the nicest person. I'm not afraid of them anymore because that guy's sitting next to me in a meeting Mm -hmm. and I've heard him share and I've heard him cry. And I, you know what I'm saying? It's like all of a sudden everybody in the outside world looks different to me because I see the commonality between us. That we're all humans and we're all having a human experience. Yes. It's funny that you brought that up because my best friend today texted me a picture from the wedding that I was at. And it was a picture of all of us or a group of us sitting on a stone wall in front of a sunset. And she said, isn't it crazy how we're all together and we're all so different? And I was like, we're our chosen family, right? And if you teak or teak, geez, if you take each one of us and pull us apart and look at each individual, we're very different. You know, back in, on the streets, I would not have hung out with one of those girls, right? I would have been like, uh, no, thank you, mm-hmm. hippie queen. Um But now these are my favorite people in the whole world. And I don't care. Like my buddy Mike, there is no way we would have hung out. But I would rather, you know, spend time with him doing nothing than than not, you know. Um, And it's such a beautiful gift of this program when you look past the differences and look toward the similarities. I don't care if you're, okay, maybe I shouldn't lead with the Trump supporter thing because maybe I do care about that. Um, Mm. But... You know, I don't care Preach. if your favorite color is blue and mine's orange. We both like colors. Bam. Now we have something in common. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it's it's just incredibly valuable. I want to circle back to something before we run okay. out of time. Can I do that? Yes, please. Okay. So Jewish and 12-step. I yes. want to circle back to that. Okay. Yes. So part of what I do a lot of the time is I'll have people call me or we'll meet with them and they'll say, well, I'm not going to do AA because it's Christian. Mm. And it kills me. It drives me nuts um, because it's not a Christian program. Now, okay. Are there components of the program that feel kind of um, outside of our wheelhouse in terms of practice and like ritual and tradition? Okay. Um, a lot of the language feels not Jewish, right? A lot of capital he talk. Capital G's, yeah. Kind of, on your knees. Yes. Um, talking about praying on your knees, all that kind of stuff, right? Here's the thing. I think it's on page 46, maybe. I think it's page mm-hmm. 46, where it talks about like the only thing you need is a concept of a spirit in the universe and that your concept does not have to look like anybody right. else's concept. As far as I'm concerned, that's like the nucleus of the 12-step program. Like yeah. that's it right there. And how you interpret the program is up to you. And what I really try to tell people, like there are plenty of meetings where they do not say the Lord's Prayer at the end. Now, I don't like it that we always say the Lord's Prayer I've had people try to argue with me that the root of the Lord's prayer is in a Jewish prayer. I'm not having it, okay? It's not a Jewish prayer. Uh, it was. It's in the Old Testament. Yeah. Let's be real for a minute. <laughs> I don't care. No Jew is saying that prayer in a no, synagogue. No, they're not. No Jew, okay? It, None. So point being that it, it... I love how Adam's laughing. I know, right? I'm loving our Jewish crew we got right, in here today. Right? <laughs> I know, right? Back me up here. So because it's not, right? Right. And so... You know, but here's the thing. I don't want people to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. There are things, listen, there's a meeting, the women's meeting that I go to where group conscience was like, let's say the serenity prayer at the end. Yeah. And it's like, okay, problem solved. The you fellowship know? I go to, we predominantly do. Right. And um, like the women's meeting I have on Wednesdays, sometimes I pray for us, right? You know, and and no one gets to have my concept of God because I have Aslan God and, you know, like Aslan from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where it's oh, Liam Neeson's voice. That. Okay. My concept of God is a lot more Christian-y, but that that's voice, okay. right? And I'm just not willing to share because Aslan is awesome. Um, but I think that's an incredible point you made, right? Yeah. And it's yet another thing where we're like, well, I think it's this way. I've shoved it into a box. I've shoved God into a box. And the minute that you think you know everything, and this is so hard for me to say because I'm a little bit of a know-it-all, is the minute you stop seeking. And I get oftentimes proven wrong to be like, yeah. well... I think I know everything about fantasy football. I think I know everything about disability insurance. And all of a sudden it's like, guess what? You don't. And I'm going to humble you in that experience. So to wrap us up a little bit here, um, this has been incredible. And I swear we could probably talk for more hours. Um, And if you've been listening for this long, thank you so much. (laughs) Congratulations. Um, No, this has been wonderful. Like I'm, I'm high on life. Um, But (laughs) you're adorable. I just love you. You're so cute. Um, 
If you could give a small little like snippet of wisdom to give to someone who's listening, what would be your parting thing? It's kind of hard to give it, but. You know, I wrote something about this the other day on Facebook. Somebody posted one of those, what would my 40-year-old self tell my 20-year-old self? Um, And I'm trying to think about what I said there. Um, A small snippet of wisdom. Shit, this is hard. You really put me on the spot here. Um, It's my favorite part. (laughs) um, God. I don't know. There's so much. I would say a couple of things. Okay. Um, I would say don't be afraid to talk to people. Don't be afraid to reach out to people that you haven't talked to in a long time. And like relationships are so important. Like I'm literally halfway through my life. I hope I live to be 90. That'll be a win, right? Mm -hmm. I'm 45. And there are relationships that I've lost over the years. And I really wish that I had done the work to maintain those relationships. I wish that I picked up the phone because that's what we used back in the day. I wish I had, you know, contacted them and said, Hey, I'm sorry, we haven't talked in so long. And I don't know. It's not too late. It's never too late. You just, it's never too late because you don't ever know what's going to happen with people. So that's the one thing I would say. And then the other thing I would say is humility is, I think, the crux of finding any sort of peace in life. I don't, I haven't achieved peacefulness. I'm still working on it. Um, but I really try to stay humble. And one way I try to do that is by being willing to listen to people's constructive Mm -hmm. criticism of me and their feedback and being able to take it in and to know that I really don't have all the answers to apologize when I'm wrong, to own my Mm -hmm. mistakes. All of that has made me a much better version of the person that I used to be. And I would say, do the work to find that sense of humility and everything in life will sort of open up to you. And I'm not done with it. I don't want to say that I'm the most humble person in the world because I'm definitely not. Mm. Um, But I really strive for that. That's what I'm kind of going for most of the time. And it's all about, you know, trying to strive for something. I don't think we get this Dalai Lama perfect part of the mountain, right? Like I heard this speaker last night, Rob Bell. He's one of my favorites. You should check him out, especially if you're... If you're listening and you're questioning your views on God and have an open mind, he's awesome. Okay. Um, but he talks about how joy is not found at the top of the mountain. Joy is found at the bottom of the mountain where life is, right? Mm-hmm. And experiencing joy comes in experiencing hardship and being able to say, yeah, people die. Yeah, yeah. life sucks and it's going to get worse, but I'm humbled and grateful to be in that space. And I will add one more thing. Please do. Read the four agreements. Oh, Yeah. We need a whole TED talk on that. I know, but it really did. It changed my life. I will say it's a book that could probably have been a pamphlet, but but still, you could skip the part about the Toltec Indians at the beginning. But that book changed my life, Mm -hmm. and um, I I take pieces of it with me every single day and remind myself. It's got a pretty cover too, so definitely read it, and it fit in your bag. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day and being here and you know, giving so much of yourself to other people and being vulnerable and intimate in this space. And I'm incredibly grateful, like words cannot describe. And thanks to Most High for having us here. Yeah, this is um, great. If you have not downloaded their app yet, you should do that. It's on Android and on iTunes or whatever the right terminology for Apple is. Um, I can't keep up and I have an iPhone. I got great. that fancy new iPhone Pro. Um But with that being said, the app is great. You can find all of their documentaries, this podcast, um, pretty much anything that they have produced out of here. And it's great content. Um, And then also follow us on Instagram, Control Issues 19. Gmail, if you want to shoot me an email with feedback, controlissues19 at gmail.com. If you're wanting to find us to listen to more episodes, we're on all the platforms. And if you have any questions, do not hesitate to reach out. And I have loved the feedback I've gotten so far. Um, and I think that's it. And hopefully we'll make it to episode seven. Oh, you're definitely going to <laughs> break some statistics. Seven. So yes. Thanks guys. Uh, I'll chat with you later and here's wait. wait, wait. wait. Let, Leslie, where can people learn more? Oh yes, please. Oh, that's okay, right. Yeah. Where can okay. we learn more? So the program that I work for is called Hamza and it stands for helping Atlantans manage substance abuse. It also happens to be the Hebrew name for the hand symbol. A lot of people know like the hand of Fatima. Um, we're part of a larger uh, nonprofit social services agency called Jewish Family and Career Services. So you can call me at one eight three three Hamza Helps. I know it's too many letters. Just do it. And then <laughs> um, you could also go to HamzaHelps.org or you could go to our agency website, which is um, JFCSATL.org. Mm-hmm. Um, we 
have so many services and so many ways to help people. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out. I'm happy and to we'll, help. Uh, we'll drop some links in cool. the, Thank you. the podcast for that as well to get people connected. I really dropped the ball. I was like, I'm going to talk about Hamsa. And I dropped <laughs> it. Um, but thank you so much, Adam. So yeah, definitely we'll put some links so they can contact you. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We out. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall. Don't say it because I know I'm cute. Ooh, baby. Knew it Gotta be looking like Red Goo. Lit up like a crystal ball. That's cool, baby. So is you. That's how I roll. If I'm shining, everybody gonna shine. I was born like this. Don't even gotta try. I like shouting, nigga. Better over time. They just say I'm not the baddest bitch you like.